It's like you read my mind. You know exactly what I'm thinking. Mrs. Sunshine said, I can help you. Do you think that your teacher goes too fast sometimes? I can slow him down for you. Scribble said, really? With a surprised look, but, but, can I draw too? Mrs. Sunshine responded, of course you can still draw. You certainly don't want to lose that talent of yours, but you only can draw when you do not need to get schoolwork done, okay? Sometimes you can draw out a math problem and see it in a different way. Every student thinks differently. Just remember, close your eyes and dream. Hey there, Recovery Nation. Producer John here. In this week's episode of Full Potential Now, Ted chats with author and former special educator Teresa Makowitz. Join us as Ted and Teresa discuss challenges faced by students who struggle and what happens when addicted parents are involved. Don't go anywhere. We've all struggled at one time or another in our lives. I mean, isn't it part of the human condition? We might face challenges at school, home, or even our job, but we have to somehow pull through these. Some of us better than others. But what if we had a learning disability and it affected our ability to learn? And maybe we might even develop the not so good feelings about ourselves because we're not as good as others and we struggle. What then? Would we be more susceptible to following the not-so-good path? Maybe we would develop an opposition or aggressiveness to other people to maybe hide those feelings of insecurity. Or maybe we might even reach out to alcohol or drugs to sort of like numb ourselves from those feelings. It seems like a complicated problem. And if the problem is so complicated, what could one educator with a passion for writing children's books possibly do about this. Well, I am here with the fabulous Teresa Makowitz, who has recently written a book called Scribbles, which is about a young girl who struggles in school and um, has to deal with that and comes from, what, a disability background? Is that kind of the stage of the book? Well, it's basically um, about a student who is struggling, right? And Mrs. Sunshine is um, the special ed teacher who kind of pulls her through. So we learn a little bit later that Scribbles may have a disability or not, but, you know, that we can um, help her get through with everything. Well, excellent. Well, we are so lucky to have you on the podcast today. So we want to give you a sincere thanks, Teresa. Thank you so much for having me. You are welcome. And maybe we could kick it off by telling us a little bit about your background and maybe uh, what drew you to the field you got into. Well, my background is um, special ed teaching. I've worked in many different settings in special ed. So I worked in emotional behavioral. I worked in inclusion. I worked with the deaf, worked with the blind. I worked with all different types of uh, disabilities 
And uh, it's my passion. I've always wanted to do this. Um, actually, when I was a child, I saw double uh, all my life for, you know, until I was 30 years old is when I got it corrected. So I really sat in their seats. I understand what they're feeling. I understand how they feel. And that's why um, I became the teacher for this field. And um, I'm able to actually talk to these kids, you know, down to earth and say, hey, listen, I get it, you know, but we need to still keep going. You can't give up on yourself. And when I tell them, my students, those things, they're oh, uh, okay, you know, and then they come with me because they know that they're not alone. And I really do understand. So that's been my background. And how I got to um, doing scribbles is my husband's in the Coast Guard and he actually it was um, got transferred and I didn't know what I was going to do. I really can't go back to the classroom every three years and um, just not make that commitment to the children and then leave every three years. That doesn't work well for the social-emotional piece, um, and I really am compassionate about the students, so I wouldn't want that. So um, I turned to, I was going to be a personal trainer, and then I broke two ankles in one year. <laughs> and, I, <laughs> and I've always wanted to write and I, since I was a little girl, and so I, I just started writing, and, and now I've been published, and I win awards, and I guess this is the dream coming true for me. And I used to struggle. And I think the children need to hear that just because you struggle doesn't mean anything. You can move on from that. And that's what my book is basically about, Make You Strong. Excellent. Excellent. Um, and it's been nominated for some awards. Is that right? Yes. It um, got an international book award um, and also a Best Books award. Uh, for the category of children's mind, body, and spirit. So I'm very proud about that yeah. in 2017. So, so like with your background, like mm-hmm. growing, you know, growing up and, and dealing with it, you know, like with the vision issues, what did you, what, what do you think was like maybe some of your most profound moments growing up that kind of led you because we always kind of oftentimes talk about like people who have disabilities or impairments and their struggle through life. And there's per- people that turn the corner that have somehow overcome the obstacles. And then there's people that struggle and it's difficult for them to overcome the obstacles and maybe they go down a different path. So what I'm always so curious about just for the sake of Ted here is um, what struggles, what were your maybe one or two key struggles, and how did you overcome those just as as a kid? You know, to have a support system, you know, with family, and not only to have a support system and um, your school, your school family is very important. I really believe that. Even if you're struggling and if you know that you got a teacher in school who will be by your side and, you know, be that cheerleader and you need it because that's where you're struggling, you know, you can't say anything better about teachers. That's why Mrs. Sunshine, in my book Scribbles, she's like the you know the cheerleader for Scribbles to pull her along to help her through this, you know, and um, and not give up on her and says, oh, I, I have somebody who can help me. And then when you go home and you're frustrated, you know, if you have family members who help you out, that helps you too. Like my father always told me never to give up, and my mother, she always put me right back in that ring. I I couldn't give up. Not with my family, you know, and not with my teachers who are wonderful in school and um, very supportive. So I think you need a good round situation around you to be supportive in and out of school. 
So it's a social emotional piece, I think, that needs to continue. And that's why I've been writing, because my books will do that. And I need these kids to feel good about themselves and I need them to keep pushing, you know, even though it's hard, you know, we'll find a way. So is the book really written for like what age group? So my publisher says from four to seven year olds, I wrote it for third grade, I'll be honest. And I wrote it all the way up to 10th grade low readers. And I wrote it like that for multi audiences and multi ages on purpose. Um, I wanted the kids who are really struggling, you know, at the little kid area, they can stop and start, you know, when they need to read scribbles. Then as they go into the third grade is usually when they figure out if they have an IEP or they're really struggling and, and then they feel lost. They don't know what to do. And so when they can pick up scribbles there and they go, oh, oh, she struggled like this. That's how I feel, you know, and then they relate. But not only that, and then it can keep on going for the low readers in 10th grade and on. Um, that way they can actually talk about, you know, these struggles. But, you know, it's not a threatening book. It's a, a book to help children to understand that it's going to be okay. We're just going to figure out how to work it. So when, um, so it's really, I wrote it for third grade though. So it can go back and forth and can go up and down on purpose. But it's a multi-audience approach is what I did. So not only the child, but the parent the, um, or the guardian, whoever's watching this child, right? For the guidance counselor, for the special ed teacher, for the administrator, whoever is around that child, it's for everybody to be on the same page. And when everybody's on the same page, we can all make this successful and all the cheerleaders can go everywhere. This is just fabulous. And I don't think there's enough of this stuff in the school system. Right. Um, yes. Right. I mean, just, just thinking about the IEPs I've kind of sat in on when I, I worked with a lot of uh, children and adolescents way back in the day. Right. And um, I think back in like 2000, 2002, 2003, there's just not a ton of stuff like this being at that, at that time being done in the school. So I think like your book is like really refreshing to hear about that we have a way to dialogue with kids. Yes. So a kid can yes. better understand themselves, but then maybe the parent could pick it up and learn about what that child might be going through from their perspective. Right. And that's why I wrote it multi-audience. I did that on purpose. And well, then I also made dolls to go with scribbles, right? And those dolls will go into a special ed setting or a guidance setting. And then the kid can really talk about how they're feeling and use my scribble doll. And then they can use my Mr. Stanza doll and Mrs. Sunshine doll. And then, you know, she makes the, the frog in the book, you know, and, and then talk through the dolls because now it's not about them. It's about these dolls. Right. And then they feel safe and then they can talk about it that, you know what, math is hard and I don't really want to do math and that's okay. You know, yeah. but we still going to get you through it. You know? Yeah. Yeah. What a great way to utilize dolls. Yeah. I mean, they can talk about it like almost in the third person. Right. That makes them feel comfortable enough to actually explain it to the adult around them. And it's so much easier just when I think about just life in general to talk about things in the third person. It's so less threatening. Right. Yes. And better and able to. Yeah, you're, 
yeah, you're better able to connect with it. So what do you think happens? I mean, obviously, this is an addiction podcast, and we've explored different avenues on this podcast from you know, eating disorders to opiate addiction to alcohol addiction to motivational interviewing to all these different topic areas. So what I'm curious about, too, is what happens when you don't have that support? So I love the fact that you said, well, one of the keys is, hey, sometimes for me, and I remember myself, I stuttered in first and second grade. It was actually right. a traumatic experience. Right. It, it tore down my self-esteem. I was shameful. I wouldn't speak up. Um, and I think that impacted me, you know, at that time in, in a really big way. Absolutely. It, there wasn't any of these books out there. There was sort of like no. Ted, just kind of get through it. I even remember my mom telling me that they wanted to flunk me in in kindergarten. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. And she fought <laughs> to get me through. And then I always had to do, and one thing I've learned just, just in my own struggles in school is I always had to work way harder than everybody else to get an average grade. Absolutely. Or even the pass. And mm-hmm. I remember my mom told me, she just said, she said, Ted, I know your brother doesn't have to study as much as you. I know your sister doesn't have to study as much as you, but you just have to study more. That, that's yeah. just it. It's the reality. Yeah. Like, I wish it could be different, but if you're going to do well, you have to buckle down. And so she kind of almost took like this really super hard approach with me, which I think right. inevitably helped. I mean, my mom was probably more harder than nurturing. <laughs> so I probably could have used some more nurturing along the way. But I really kind of wonder. It's called tough love, right? Yeah. Tough yeah, love with somebody some str- yeah, struggling with like an impairment. So I'm like, um, so what I'm curious about is what happens if that piece breaks down? I mean, if you don't have that support and that child goes through school, um, I always ended up seeing them probably as adolescents with like behavioral issues or alcohol and drug issues. But what in your experience do you see when maybe that parenting piece drops off and it's well, not you, there? You, there's like um, there's different types of children, right? So you have the, the child that will still do it no matter what because, you know what, that's who they are. And then there's certain kids who need that support and they might fall right off. They might fall right off that track, and then they don't care about education. They don't care about you know doing the the grades the correct way. They don't they don't push themselves because they don't believe in themselves. And that's what I'm trying to say with my book, right? I really am trying to say that. You know, my quote in there is just remember, close your eyes and dream, and you'll get there. And these kids need to know this, you know, through a book, through a parent, uh, a parent, through somebody around them. But if we don't have that connection in school, that one teacher, one teacher could help that child. But if they don't even have that, they could turn into, and I'm not a doctor, they could turn, you know, to drugs or drinking or something else because that makes them happy, right? That that makes them release that anger that they have. I'm not sure. You know, I've never went down that road, I'll be honest with you. However, but I can foresee it. And you said that you saw a data that proves what I'm saying. And I think the children, you know, if they don't have that right support, they really can go a different avenue. And I'm really trying to give back. I'm a sociologist, too. And I, I think that it's so important that children need to know that they're loved in school and they're loved at home. But, you know, sometimes you, 
you have to push them. You have to have discipline. I'm not saying hurt them, like, you know, spank them and all that. I'm not talking about that type of discipline. But to, you know, hold them accountable. Hold them accountable. And if the kid knows that you're going to hold them accountable, then they're going to try harder and they're going to try to move. So it's definitely a possibility that they can go down a different road that the other person could not go down. So it all depends, you know, and really should do that. So when you see, like, I'm kind of fascinated also about trajectories. Mm. So let's say, Ted, we go back in time. He's stuttering first and second grade. He doesn't have his mom. I mean, my dad was an alcoholic, so he wasn't involved. It was pretty much my mom holding together four kids Mm -hmm. um, and doing it all, working full time, trying to, you know, deal with me as well as the (laughs) other three. Um, (laughs) presented different challenges but what if she's not there if she's not there then you put it this way you're a lucky man to have her around right and i think that if she wasn't there she might have you might have went to a in a, i don't know you know it's possible you could go to a gang situation where because that's a kind of a family right you could you're looking for family right you're going to go look to that gang for support Right. And then you join that gang and maybe that gang has drugs. Maybe the gang has drinking. I don't know. But you're going to look for someone to support you and love you. And you just got to thank God your mom was there for you because there's a lot of broken homes. There's a lot of people who have issues in their households. And, you know, the people have to be thankful that, you know, um, they're surrounded by that love. You know, my father worked extremely hard when I was a kid and my mother did, too. And I had a lot of support with them, you know, growing up. But, you know, I, I saw my friends struggling. I had a, a former friend who went right to that marijuana because he did not have a good household situation, you know, because, and that made him feel better. So if you're not getting, like, the support, like, I'm thinking about, like, I'm struggling in school or somebody, uh, another child's struggling in school, they don't have the parent to come in and right. support them to be mm-hmm. successful maybe then in essence they become disconnected from school and begin doing other things, looking elsewhere, like you'd mentioned, like maybe they gravitate towards a gang or or a deviant group or maybe a group that smokes weed or drinks, that sort of thing. Yeah, absolutely. And then we would look at them and we'd say, well, let's, like, I, I would pick these kids up at 14, 15, 16 and say, all right, we got to deal with your, your, your weed addiction or your alcoholism or your opiate addiction. Mm-hmm. Which we would do from a treatment standpoint for sure, but then I'm always fascinated with this kind of these underlying issues, which meant that wait a second, don't we still have to deal with this person and help them maybe better connect with education, get more support and connection at the schools, or have their family more involved at the schools? And could that also be a turning point for them? Absolutely. It all could be a turning point. And it all depends on what type of temperament these children have, too. So you can have a really strong nut and have a temperament, and you're still not going to be shook, right? I actually had a student, and she was amazing. Amazing girl. She really was. And she came into our inclusion setting, my friend and I. And, um, you know, my friend and I were just, you know, after school, we're just talking whatever about the day, you know, how we can make it better, whatnot. And this girl comes in. And she's crying, and she says to me, why does my mom want to kill me? And I said, oh, my goodness, <laughs> thinking that she maybe stole the car or took the car or uh, broke something, you know, something kind of like that you can deal with, right? Um, something that, you know, your parents would get mad about, but then they'll get over it type of thing. 
No, she came in there and her mother was really trying to kill her. Um, and we were her teachers and she felt safe and she talked to us about that. And then, of course, we called the adjustment counselor. Adjustment counselor came down and had a conversation with her and took all the right, you know, social pieces for this child. Um, but the next day, the, the mother was put in jail because it was a true situation that this girl was dealing with. And not only was she dealing with it, she wanted that education. She wanted to grow and keep going and pushing and pushing. And she was amazing because she did it. She didn't graduate on time, and that's okay. But she finished it, and she wanted to keep going. So I think temperament has a lot to do with, you know, if you're going to go down that road or you're not going to go down that road, you know. But to have more support around you, you're not going to go down that road fast. You know what I mean? You're going to be like, oh, got to go. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So let me give you a scenario. Okay. He's a, you know, one of the many scenarios I've encountered out in the field. <laughs> but this is more of a classic scenario. So they bring Johnny in, who's been smoking weed for two years. Mm. The parents bring him in, but the parents have had major issues themselves, and the mom just brings Johnny in. They drop him off at the door, basically, saying, we don't want to be involved in treatment too much, but get him to quit smoking weed and everything will be all right. So he becomes identified as sort of like the problem child. Mm. I wonder... What if Johnny doesn't have a growth temperament? Let's say he jumps through the hoops and says, all right, I don't want to do alcohol and drug treatment, but if all I have to do is be clean for six months, I'll do it, and then right. I'll get out. Mm-hmm. And then a lot of times what we see with adolescents, they just relapse right away. They go back, if they get back to their old peer group, they get back into the same old, same old. Yeah. Kind of who you're hanging with is what you're doing. Mm-hmm. And then the parents might bring them back through a year later. Well, he's still having problems. It's worse. He's, he's hopeless. It's not going to happen. We find out Johnny had a learn, learning disability. Mm-hmm. He's always been behind in school. And so I've sent out, over the years, I became more curious about this. So I started actually getting more extensive school records from these adolescent boys I would see. Yes. And what I was struck with was so the large percentage of them that had some sort of learning disability, IEP, going on. Current statistics show that one in five U.S. children has a learning disability. Unfortunately for children with learning disabilities, adults are often unaware of the extent of the problem and believe that maybe the symptoms of learning disabilities are just all part of growing up. If these aren't identified early in life, learning disabilities can not only impair a person's day-to-day functioning, but also increase their chances of becoming addicted to drugs and alcohol. The stigma and lack of awareness of educators and adults increases the chances that a child with a learning disability will repeat grades, might get suspended, or even drop out of school. All of these consequences put together greatly increase their chances that a vulnerable individual may turn alcohol and drugs to just cope with things. Dyslexia, for instance, is the most common learning disability in the U.S. currently. Dyslexia impairs a person's ability to read and comprehend text. People with dyslexia may also experience problems between words and letters that sound familiar. The second most commonly diagnosed learning disability is ADHD. About 6.4 million people in the U.S. have this diagnosis. People with ADHD have a difficult time staying focused and completing tasks. Learning disabilities also cover a variety of processing deficits. People with a processing deficit may have trouble understanding and processing sensory data. 
Processing deficits can include things that are auditory, visual, and make it hard for people to remember relevant information. Unfortunately, people with learning disabilities are sometimes missed in school and go unrecognized, and this leads to learning difficulties and poor grades. They can also be stigmatized and suffer as children, which ultimately could negatively impact them as adults. But somehow the parents, you know, oftentimes they have addictions themselves. Right. Dealing with their own issues. But they haven't been connected with Johnny at all. So now mm-hmm. we're maybe picking him up also with an aggression issue. He's, he's using substances. He's run away from home. We're dealing with all that stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Which is important stuff for sure because you, it's almost yeah. like the tip of the – but what I look at now is it was the tip of the iceberg. Yes. And so then what if Johnny doesn't have that positive mentor or his parents never come around? He doesn't have that temperament or that learning grow mindset. Um, Is there any successful strategies that you can do with a kid that maybe has gone down the road five or six years, become more disconnected from school, identifying with a deviant peer group, and now he has an IEP, some sort of learning disability? Um, his parents are disconnected. He doesn't have a growth mindset. What do we do with him? Is he like destined to live a life of crime and get locked up and all that stuff? No, I don't think so. Maybe this is just my heart talking, but you know, there's a lot of um, students. You know, when they get caught, when they're in an IEP, there's a lot of people around them developing this IEP. You know, you have the special ed teacher who is now the uh, liaison for that child, and that liaison goes and looks at, um, we'll say English, math, whatever, and that liaison goes and and sees, all right, Johnny might have problems, we're just going to say reading, okay, and so she goes over to the English teacher, and she said, how is Johnny doing with the reading, and then she, you know, the English teacher may say, you know, he really struggles, and then we find out he's dyslexic. You know, maybe maybe find that out. Maybe, you know, because he's going to get the core valve, right? So we're like, oh, my goodness. So then we put him on Kurzweil, right? Um, a wonderful um, computer technology, and he's able to be successful there, right? Maybe Johnny um, just needs a little uh, TLC. Maybe need the Wilson perk approach. And then he gets, and then all this can be in the plan, the IEP plan, you know? which is great because we can help Johnny figure out what he's doing. I mean, I had students, I, this, I had this one girl and I, she steals my heart all the time. And, um, she came to ninth grade and she couldn't really read or write that well. It's ninth grade. So I kind of just passed her through. Yeah. She's cute. You know, she's cute. <laughs> you know? And I said, the cuteness stops here because she encountered with me. Now I'm her resource room English teacher. She don't like that. You know, and then we go to the IEP and I talk to dad. I said, I would love to help your daughter. And she's amazing. I can't because your other daughter is doing all her work. Oh, the father father goes, what? You know, but then the father was on the same page as me. And we we can have this conversation. I think we're losing conversations. We're losing um, parent and teachers coming together. We're losing that piece. And then the kid doesn't get what we all need, you know. And once he came on the side with me and we were together on that, um, the girl started growing. And she did a lot. Of, she did really well. She did. She wrote five paragraph 
um, five paragraph essays and three of them. And the rest of the group had uh, five of them. So she said she didn't do bad at all. And then she made it, she made it to college, you know, and she passed the MCAS, you know, for the state testing. So it has to do with like, they're not destined just to fail out of their life. No, there's got to be someone who can connect. And I used to love that. I mean, we had 400 students. I'll never forget it. And um, in the 10th, about uh, midterm, I remember going, why are 10 failing? Why? Why are these 10 failing? And I was really upset. And I'm sitting at lunch and the science teacher looks at me and he goes, "Uh, Teresa, I have like 80 (laughs) failing. And I'm like, I say, I'm going to just eat my lunch and go away. I'm sorry. (laughs) I didn't know what to say. Right. And then um, by the end, there was only two who failed. My friend Debbie and I, we put a lot of effort in. We watched everything. And I'll tell you, those kids were so awesome. We probably had 32 in that classroom. Probably 28 were on IEPs. They're all passing. Wow. I, didn't give, I did not give them answers. No way. No way I gave them tools. I showed, I showed them how to do certain things. Oh, you have this learning disability or you're having this problem. Okay, boom. Oh, that didn't work. Here, here's another strategy. Boom. You know, you got to be skilled. You got to be skilled with these kids. You know, you got to think out of the box. You can't just say, oh, just read it again. That's not going to work. Not for all of them. You know, maybe it works for Johnny, but maybe it doesn't work for the other lady over there. You know, so you have to figure out what works for that child and how to pick them up, even though they're down. I mean, I had to work with that one girl I was talking about. We played Mangala. She was so mad about that English. She hated me daily. It was like this on and go. She hated me, loved me, hated me, loved me. And then I said, okay, come here. She's like, what? I said, so let's play Mancala. She's like, what do you mean? She was so good at it. She was so good at it. She was so good at math. She destroyed me every single time. And I really did try. I honestly tried. And she she destroyed me. And I said, okay. And then she goes, okay, I'm ready for English again. See that push and pull effect? Yeah. You have to use that for the children. So even if the kid is like on the you know fence about doing the marijuana or not, you know, you have to give him skills. You have to explain to him or her, you know, how you can get out of this, you know, and they have to want it. They have to want it and they have to know that you believe in them too, you know, because I really believe that because we had, we had 400 students that year. The ADA reports 48% of parents of children with learning disabilities believe their children will simply outgrow these deficits. Well, another 33% of educators think children who display symptoms of a learning disability may just be lazy. This can present all kinds of problems for parents and also as a parent with an addiction issue. I mean, parenting a child with learning disability offers certain challenges. So what would happen if you had an alcohol or drug addiction issue and you were a parent of a child with a disability? How then could you effectively parent? This is, this is like so profound, Teresa, from the standpoint of as you talk about kids in special ed, it is so relevant to just somebody in recovery. I could take exactly what you just said, and we couldn't even be talking about IEPs. We could be talking about people thinking about getting sober, mm-hmm. wanting to have support, wanting to have some sort of hope that life could get better. Right. So maybe this... Johnny's smoking weed, but if he 
keeps going back to school and is unsuccessful. And I really like that you use technology and different learning programs rather than the old school of just, well, read it five times again, and then you'll get it. Oh, you only read it three times? You're not trying hard enough. And then eventually... I think kids just relent. They're just like, forget this. I just can't. Okay. And, and then they almost like adopt what I've seen sometimes is they adopt this identity of almost like I can't do school. Right. And I love my students used to say this to me. They go, Mrs. M, don't you know that I'm on an IEP? Oh, oh, I do. You know why? And they go, why? I said, I wrote it. Let's get back to work. <laughs> you know? and, See, and, like, oh, what do you mean? and so I'm showing them that I love them. I do understand everything they're doing. Yes, it's going to be hard, but you're going to do it, man. It's going to be okay. You know, and these kids who have learned disabilities means nothing. It means nothing. They are smart in their own way. And I really think, honestly, I really think that education needs to be changed to like an authentic assessment situation. And I wrote that up. Because I really feel as though that if, you know, there's three modalities constantly in the lesson plan, pretty much all of them are going to get it. You know, kinesthetic audio and visual, if we're all doing it in that one lesson plan, they all should be able to get whatever the lesson is. And we used to do that in our English class. And I would have students, because I worked at a vocational high school, right? <laughs> and they, would, they hated the English, right? And then they would do whatever they were doing. And then I would have to go down, and this is the community again, right? I'd go down to their shop, and i say, all right, um, so-and-so is not doing well in English. I need you to help me get that kid to help me, and, and let's make this like a, a community, like a family. And uh, so the teacher would say, what are they not doing? And I said, this in English. Okay, got them, right? And they don't want to disrespect that shop teacher. No way. So they go over there, and, and then the shop teacher says, hey, you can't do that you need to finish your english or whatever it is and then the kid's like all right and then they come back refocused in you know so if i couldn't get him i would go to the shop teacher the shop teacher again you know in a loving way it was always a loving community to help these children do whatever they needed to do it's it's so i mean this is resonating so well with me because i i'm thinking of like people are supporting people Mm-hmm. You know, with love and support, and yeah. but there's also this accountability component, and there's right. an avenue for them to go to be successful. So if I yeah. actually even apply this to like recovery, like this is like a great model for so many things. So like in recovery, if you feel alone, mm-hmm. like I'm an IV heroin user, let's say, and I don't have support of a better life. And when I attempt to go into that other life, it sucks and I'm unsuccessful. <laughs> Why right. would I not keep using? Right. If there's nothing, if if there's nothing better out there, like you were saying, like if there's no other better support system out there, why would I not just continue to get high with my buddies that get high every day? And we sort we of like, so much fun. <laughs> yeah, fun. We numb out. We don't have to think about any of this stuff. Deal with any stress. So you're all, almost like, even though it's like dysfunctional to the outside world, it's actually functional right which which is one of my key learnings out in the field over the last probably five years is really viewing people first in the assessment phase is how is are these behaviors actually functional for them so even if you know we look at addiction and we say all right obviously shooting IV heroin every day is not good for you. It's obviously dysfunctional from the outside, but how does it actually function for you? Because that gives the key ingredients 
in the recipe for success. Right. I think. And right. so yeah. I, and the other part I like what you said too, is this, this piece of, Hey, somebody can go down the wrong path for a while, but all it does is take one person, parent, teacher, somebody intervene and give this care, give this person, you know, support, love to continue to maybe find a better path. And then the other thing is you can show all the love and caring you want, but if you actually don't connect with the tool to -hmm. help them be successful or the right roadmap, they might end up still being more and more discouraged over time. So I think there's two parts. And I think one part we think of the disconnected person. The next part is, oh, I'm all behind you. Do well. But the third part is, wait a second, you don't have the tools to be successful. Love only goes so far. Yeah, tools. Yeah. Yeah. I actually know uh, one of my good friends, and I love her daily. Her mother gave her drugs when she was growing up and she thought that was what she was supposed to do right then she gets to high school level and that teacher um said to her uh you're not supposed to be doing that you know drugs are not okay (laughs) and my friend was like really that's all she knew and then um (laughs) he's just like no no no. you're not not supposed to be doing that (laughs) so she goes wow um and then then she stopped she stopped and then she started growing her life again. And boy, she was homeless. She was, she's probably one of the strongest ladies I know. And she still made it. She graduated high school. Then she went into the, um, the forces, like she went into the army. And then, um, and then she, you know, she, she made it. She made it, you know. But some, just one person told her that that is not a good life plan. <laughs> you should not be doing that. She didn't know. She was given drugs from her mother. Yeah. Right. And she, you know, she made it. She, you know, so I think temperament, personalities, all that definitely interplay. You got to figure out how these kids have personalities to make it work. So like, that's what I usually do with my special ed classroom. If I see they might have a strong personality. I had this one awesome kid, God bless him. He's passed. And I don't know if he had drug condition or anything like that, but he did not have a supportive mom. You know, and so I was his like mom at school, right? And uh, I was his liaison. And boy, did he get so mad that he was in an inclusion English class. Oh, he was mad. He said, I am not a kid who has a learning disability uh, in English. It's in math. So why am I here? Oh, he was so mad, so mad. And I said, well, you're here because it's inclusion. <laughs> you know, like you need to be the other part. You know, inclusion is regular ed and special. There you go, inclusion. <laughs> you know, and uh, he was very upset. He wanted to be in these top writing classes and all this stuff. And, and God bless him, you know, because he he had to do his um, project. And I, we tell him, okay, you can't have, like, nudie people. You can't have this. You can't have this. You can't have this. So everything that we said he could not have for his project, he came right in. And <laughs> he had it all there. Every single one. <laughs> And I said, wow, thank you so much. This is so great. And, and he's smirking because he thought we we're going to kick him out. He did. He thought we we're going to kick him out. And I said, oh, my goodness, I'm your liaison. I wrote your plan. I know all about you. And great, you just failed. So now what do we do? 
And then it, it spells out that he really didn't want to be there. He wanted to be, you know, now this communication, this talk about what he wants and what he needs for him to be successful. And so I said, all right, this is what we're going to do. And he goes, what? I said, you, my friend, have earned a writing thing, right? And he goes, what do you mean? And I said, you are going to write about SSR, silent sustained reading, and why we need it in this, you know, at this high school level. And he says to me, what do you mean? I said, silent sustained reading. I want you to research it. I want you to write it. And then you're going to present it in front of the whole school, all the staff, everybody. Fine, I'll do that. Nobody else will do this. You need to do it. And when you do that, that's what am I doing? I'm picking up his self-esteem, right? I'm telling him that he's good at this. Okay, I'm going to give you a special challenge, and you're going to go. And boy, did he do it. He did an excellent job right in front of the staff, everybody at that school. He stood up there in that podium. He did it. He did an amazing job. I was so proud of him, so proud of him. But if I didn't have that communication of what he wanted to talk about, that he was so mad about that English being in the English class, you know, then I wouldn't have known to help him. That is, that is an unbelievable <laughs> story. Yeah. Unfortunately he passed away. Um, he, he uh, got hurt in a motorcycle accident, but you know, later um, we bought, we bought him a uh, Dr. Seuss book, the places you'll go. And I wrote in it, the teacher where he wanted to go, English teacher wrote in it and Debbie, my girlfriend, you know, my um, co-partner, she wrote in it and we gave it to him on graduation day. And um, then his girlfriend was trying to take it. And I said, no, 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 that's for him. That's for him. Right. And then, and then, you know, because his mom wasn't really around. Right. And um, so we're trying to help him out, pick him up. Right. And then, then about two years later, I was pregnant with my twins. And all of a sudden here he comes, the kid comes back in with his little sunglasses on, you know, because he's cool, right? <laughs> so he comes in, and, and then he starts talking to our class. And he says, you need to listen to these two, these teachers in here, right? And I said, you don't have to say that, you know? And he's like, no, no, they need to listen to you too, because you really are trying to teach us correctly. And he, and then it was like he was my advertisement. It was nice. <laughs> so I said, well, thanks, you know? And he's like, no, really. And then finally he picked his whole life back up. He was going to get married and I'm so proud of him. His um, future wife was pregnant with a baby. It was awesome. And then he got on a motorcycle accident two weeks before his wedding. It was, it's still like heart. It's like pulls on my string, but he was a success story, right? You know, look at all that we had to put in for him to make him awesome. And he was already awesome. He just needed support. Yeah. I I mean, I just think about that process you used with him which is kind of interesting because there's a lot of parents or just people out there that do the cheerleading which is good yes yeah rah 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 do it do it do it but they don't get to the underlying issue wait a second i actually don't want to do it and i'm actually going to purposely sabotage this i'm going to throw it right back in your face and i'm going to see how you respond because if you respond like the majority of people you'll push me further and further out and i'll get out of this Let's face it, the research shows that the bottom line is that students who do not get early intervention for their learning disability are at increased risk of being suspended, held back a grade, and potentially dropping out of high school. In addition, lower levels of educational attainment are highly correlated with negative life outcomes, including poor health and also increased rates of addiction and drug abuse. So what can we do to prevent a child with 
let's say a learning disability, from having problems with alcohol or drugs. And instead what you did was you said you're not getting out of it. So there's that accountability component. You actually failed. You get an F on this assignment. <laughs> but here's the yeah, but here's the portal. Here's the way to get out of it, right? right. So you'd say like do this assignment, but then you challenged him to go even further. So you're going to present this, which was like you actually what I, what I love about this story is you like elevated the bar for him. If you just keep the bar down here, let's just get this kid through so he doesn't like wreak havoc on our life and make us miserable at the end of work. We just kind of get him through. But you encouraged him. But the other thing you did was you held him accountable, but you raised the bar. You said, well, what about doing this? And you extended him. You offered him an experience. Exactly. Which I've come to, to believe this, actually. I'll just own it. But like I really feel like in order to build people's self esteem, Obviously, when people say, like, that was a good job, you did great on that paper, there's no, like, that's helpful. But the things yeah. that really built me up wasn't any of the adulation. It was right. actually doing it. And it was like, it. and feeling it. Yeah, like being a little so, bit scared and mm-hmm. then, like, doing it. And then from doing it, then feeling the confidence. Because that's almost like the portal to confidence is you almost got to do something. In order Absolutely. to get confidence, you can think it all you want, but until you're pushed in a position where you got to be accountable, you actually have to do this. And I think with young people, it's they're, they're just like, you know, it's just the brain chemistry. They're short-sighted. Um, help them with them, have a conversation around what is the pathway to get out of this. Right. And we're going to work they together. They need skills. Yeah, I I had another student and I love this kid. Oh my God, he was so great. We're in his IEP, and what a great, nice young man, nice young man. And I remember being that IEP, and it was his senior year, his senior year of high school. And the father, all he said is, "I want to be, I want my son to be able to write um, an application and do well with life." That's all his father said. And I looked at his father and I said, guess what? I'm going to try to help him as, mess, as best I can in English class. I will. I make that promise to you right now. Right. And so the father goes, thank you. You know, and boy, did I work with that kid? I worked with him and I said, give me up. Right. And I gave him some skills again, skills. Right. I said, come here. I want you to do this, this and this. And he says, all right. And he, he wanted to work with me. And he did. He worked with me. Right. And I said, all right, I want you to go home. I want you to finish this skill. And when you come back, right, I want you to, um, you know, do it, you know, explain it, blah, blah, blah. And I didn't know that my, my co-partner was, she was like, okay, pop quiz, yay. I said, no, no, there was no pop quiz right this second. <laughs> so she's like, what do you mean? I said, come on, he, he needs to finish it off what I taught him. Like, just, she's like, okay, I'll stall. <laughs> so she stalls. <laughs> And we worked together. I was like, shh, right? And then I said, Jason, you got some more time. You got some more time. So he goes and he reads and reads and reads. And, and he goes, okay, Mrs. Ham, I think I got it. I said, all right. I said, pop quiz can happen now. Pop quiz. <laughs> so we have the pop quiz go. And then, she, and then uh, I said, now, Jason, it's okay. If you don't do well, this is your first attempt with this skill. You're going to get better, right? But it's your first attempt. Okay, buddy? And he's like, okay, Mrs. M. Well, I, I honestly thought maybe you get like a C, maybe a B, 
but he took every skill I gave him, everything I gave him, and then he took that pop quiz. He gets an A. You know, amazing, amazing. And, and that's what it's about, right? You work with each other, and and I'll never forget that. And I remember at the end of the year, you have to like write something that happened to you in your life or something like that. And so the seniors write everything, and then all of a sudden, that kid writes, "Mrs. M taught me never to give up." <laughs> yeah. This is so, this is, even though we're not directly talking about like addiction recovery issues, this is so relevant because that same paradigm, that same model, like somebody who gets one day clean is thinking about going to their first meeting. So what do we do? Do we tell them, oh, you got to be sober the rest of your life and you got to learn these 10 zillion things to do it. Now go ahead and do it. Well, (laughs) how come they didn't do it? Verse... Tons of support. Actually, all like, you know, a lot of the AA and A philosophy is one day at a time. All you actually have to do is just make it to a meeting. Right. And I want to support you to make it to the meeting. And then we'll talk about like one thing you can do to remain sober. Yeah. And like breaking it down that way from the support, but then to the action with the support and the tools to be successful is so, so crucial. I think we oftentimes miss that. We just kind of throw people in and say, all right, like this application idea with a student. I've seen this done. Well, you just got to fill out five applications. And then uh, they fill them out and they're not very good, but they get very little feedback on it. And then they send them in and they never get a job. And then who supported them, really? You think about it. Yeah. Yeah, and it's like, well, no, and wait a second. I'm a failure at this, so let me go and smoke something else. Yeah, <laughs> start selling get- drugs. Yeah, I make more money doing that. So you almost, by the failure of the support with the tools and, and, and the strategies and the helpfulness to follow through on it and the accountability, you almost, if you don't do that, it makes sense why they would gravitate towards something else and stay there and stay right. resistant to ever coming back. Because if you do enough of those educational experiences that are failures, it's like old school operant conditioning. You're reinforcing. <laughs> it has a negative con- School has a negative consequence. Absolutely. Drugs, alcohol, positive consequence. Because I <laughs> yeah, make it feel good. short term. And if right. I can rationalize out all the bad shit that happens after that, I can keep using. Right. This is fascinating. Wow. Um, so we've already covered a ton of stuff. This practically, um, responds to almost all my questions. <laughs> um, but I did have, I thought of something. I thought about it from a parenting standpoint. So I work with a lot of people with addictions that get into recovery and they have kids. Mm. And the thing with addiction is it's self-centering. You, I've never met somebody who's addicted, who's not self-centered. Like mm-hmm. when you're actively addicted, you have to continue to use alcohol and drugs and be self-centered. It's kind of mm-hmm. the disease of addiction. So right. a lot of these parents will fall out of parenting mm-hmm. and then trying to re-get in, get back to being supportive of their kids' lives, but they've missed some years. And I think about like if 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 their child was struggling with a disability, they had an IEP, they had some sort of challenge they're trying to overcome. Now we say, all right, they've been missing for a couple of years. Now they're coming back into their lives. And I think like I've talked to enough people in this position, uh, the people in recovery are scared shitless. They're like, all right, well, what do I do? I, I mean, I obviously love my child. I want to be involved in her life, but I've really screwed up. 
and I don't know how to get back and I don't know how to get that trust back. I don't know how to love them the way they need to be loved. Yes. Um, yeah, that's totally. And he, he or she hates me right now. Yeah. Which Absolutely. Would, yeah, which would make sense, right? And that's what I work with them on is like, understand it from the child's experience that they actually are going to go through a period of hate. It's like almost a grief reaction where you're like, all right, I lost my parents for two years. All right, I'm not just going to welcome you with open arms, um, especially if you're an adolescent. I think when the kids are younger, they just are so looking to get back with the parents. It's a little bit easier in a lot of ways. Right. Um, but that person is like, I don't want anything to do. You know, you were gone. I struggled even more. So I don't know if right. you've had any experience with, not even direct experience, but just stories and, 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 and kids you've worked with that might fall into that that box. I worked, yeah, I worked in um, with emotional and behavioral kids, um, the toughest school in Mass. Uh, and those kids broke my heart. You know, why aren't they loved? Why does the state have them? Why do they not have a mom and dad around? Why was this one kid who has AIDS have a return policy on him and his brother gets to be kept? All these people, you know, uh, impacted. Uh, you know, the environment impacts a kid. You know, temperament impacts a kid, right? So these kids have all these different baggage. But I think a lot of times um, you have to help the parent, too. You have to give the parent certain skills in order for them to understand how the child even got there. It's right? a it's so, that same model. It's yeah. give them support. Give them skills accountability too, like, all right, I got to, yes. if I'm going to get back to my kids, if I can't show up every other day or every, right. every other, and then when I get back with them, do I have the skills to connect? Right. It's the same. It's, it's so interesting. You should write another book on this model. It's yeah, just you like, know, we should do it together. Yeah, um, that would be good. This and is we like, do it as an early childhood type book, like scribbles, right? And then, you know, about addiction. Actually, I have uh, other books, one about, um, you know, a dad being in jail. And um, that book is basically about a little boy, and you will understand this, a little boy who it's being looked at right now at Simon Schuster and um, Woodhall Press. But it's about a little boy who struggles in school because he can't focus on school. His dad's in jail. You know, he's not going to focus on skill. Forget about school. I got other things I have to deal with. Never mind, two plus two. And then his best friend is in and out of his life. Yeah, they play basketball. But his friend is a fair weather friend. Then all of a sudden, his mom goes, all right, I'm so tired. She's working at the diner. You're going to actually go meet your father. I'm going to teach you. We, we need to go see your father um, at jail. And so the kid says, all right, oh before, you, before you continue, like I'm yeah. just going to apply this to this like interesting model. It's yes. like, so the mom's coming from this place of it would be good for you to reconnect with your father. Yeah. So Absolutely. there's like this connection positive thing. Yes. The accountability component is she's actually going to follow through and take him to see him. Yeah. What's missing at this point, I'm just, and you probably get to this, is like, <laughs> what's the skill set for when you see your dad in prison? <laughs> And that's where the child is confused and doesn't know what to do. And he leans on his best friend and his best friend goes somewhere else. Think about that. That happens. That yes. really happens. And then the best friend's father and mother do, doesn't want him to hang out with this kid because his father's in jail. So now the kid's alone. He could, do, he could go down that slippery slope. 
or, you know, we can figure out what happens. So he goes with his mom, right? And she's working her butt off at the diner trying to make ends meet. This kid is actually doing the laundry for mom to support her in the house. To He starts cooking to help his mama. Right. And he's doing all the stuff. So she's so, like, all right, you, you got to go make some. Um, so he's developing. It. So he's actually developing an yep. incredible skill set at home. Yes. So he was told you have to do this. Mm-hmm. You have to do the laundry. You have to learn to cook. And he accomplishes it. Absolutely. Which is kind of interesting. Because he's taking care of his mom. And that when he takes care of his mom, he's showing love. Right. And um and then she's trying to make sure she underst- he understands why the father is in jail because she, she needs him to understand this, right? Um, so in the story, I wrote that uh, she was pregnant. Um, and the father, well, I'll tell you, so he gets to the jail, right? And he's nervous because now he's going to go meet this man he's never met before with his mother who he respects, but he can't, he can't help her, you know, like a father could. Right. So he gets there and the father, he goes in and he sees his father and his father starts crying, crying. Now, I didn't make this a uh, color thing or anything like that. I put it in animals. So I have a lion and a bear. Right. And those are my people in my story uh, because it doesn't matter. It can happen to any culture, any person, anybody. Right. I don't care. That's not my point. So he goes in there and he sees his father, who's a lion, and he's crying behind the, the jail bars. And, and then the father goes, I'm sorry, son. I'm sorry that I did this to you. I'm sorry that your mother's hurting. I'm sorry. You know, and he just cries because he understands that everybody's struggling now because he did the wrong thing. So um, and then they talk about it and, um, you know, at the prison, because now they are sitting down together. And he goes, you know, I didn't do the right thing, but this is why it happened. I got caught up in the money. I got caught up in the moment. I needed money to help your, your mom who was pregnant with you. I needed to, I got, I got spun into this web and I couldn't get out, you know, and the money was just too good. And so therefore I, I landed in jail and this is where I am. And I'm so sorry that you're struggling, your mother's struggling. And then all of a sudden he says to him, he goes, but you know what? I got caught. Now I have to pay the price. And that's what the book is called. In order to pay the price, I have to do what I need to do because I did a wrong. And so at the end, after the boy leaves his father, he, he kind of like takes it all in. And he says, wow, my father, it wasn't that my father didn't love me. It's because he loved me too much. And you know, my mother was pregnant at the time. So, but he did the wrong actions. He did the wrong thing to get money. He didn't have the skill set. Yeah, he did the skill set he knew. Right. And so that's what he's trying to do. He's trying to help the mother. So, and then he comes back and he's thinking about that. Now he's feeling that he was actually loved and not abandoned anymore. And he goes and talks to his best friend on the phone. He's like, can we go play basketball? Right. So they go play basketball. And then he starts telling the story because you have to get it out. Tells his best friend the story, and then um, the best friend goes, I'm really sorry that I left you alone. I shouldn't have done that. When you needed me as a friend, I just dropped it because I didn't know what to do. My parents were saying that. Then my parents said uh, that I should come back because that isn't what a friend does. So they reconnected at the end, and um, they learned how to go through those life, life problems, right? 
And um, so then the kid realizes, oh, look at it. And then he said, all right, but the thing is, he says to his friend, he goes, let's remember one thing my father said. And he goes, what's that? If you do something wrong, you have to still pay the price. Boom. So we got those words of wisdom, yeah. That That is such a profound story, Teresa. That is so <laughs> profound. It has so many different facets to it. I mean, it covers... Yeah, I just like where my heart went as you were telling the story was so he gets this resolution with his dad. Yes. Clear direction. And then he connects with his friend. So it's kind of like a somewhat of a happy ending. But then I think of so many other ways I've met these kids where he actually, the friend never gets back to him. His right. friend just disowns him. So he's got this wisdom. He lives with it. But then. These kids are like sometimes 14, 15, 12 years old. They're having these adult, emotionally charged, huge, mature conversations mm-hmm. with their 40-year-old parent. Yes. And like the fact that he could clean and cook, he has such a great skill set, he's probably doing crappy in school. And everybody yeah, yeah. might look at that and say, oh, this guy's a problem. <laughs> he has behavioral issues. But then you look at all these positives, you're like, actually, he just kind of... He's actually a blossoming kid when you really think about it. He's able to navigate his dad in prison, not given a skill set of how to do that, able to reach back out to his friend, able to cook, clean, do the things that probably a co-parent would do. Mm-hmm. Only he's at a young age, an amazing individual that, that all those pieces oftentimes are completely lost and buried, and we just look at the other side of things. Absolutely. And the the key is I also, um, in all my books, I I usually have Mrs. Sunshine as the teacher. And Mrs. Sunshine is me and my former teacher, who was amazing. She was amazing. So teachers are really wonderful people. And they try so hard, right? So Mrs. Sunshine's in there with that boy. And she sees that he's not doing so well, hot math. But she also lets him go talk to his best friend to learn some math, too. She didn't cut him down. She didn't. She saw what was happening and that he needed more of a positive approach with a friend than a teacher at that time. And that is okay. You have to read the pieces. You have to read the, the, the pieces all around you in order to make it work for everybody. You know, and if we don't look at all the pieces, it's a huge puzzle. And if we throw some pieces out, then we're never going to make that puzzle come together. And there's so many components to a child, you know, in that you know, we just have to sit back and listen. And listen is the key because a lot of times when I wrote my IEPs, I would say to the student, I said, okay, what do you need in class? They would tell me. And then I said, that's good. And then I can usually attach it to their ability or disability or whatever. And then I could write it. And guess what? That 504, well, that's the guidance. But for my IEP, I would go and talk to the teacher. I'm like, okay, Johnny or whoever needs this. Because this is how he feels. And I can say that. And then the teacher goes, oh, I get it. Okay, no problem. And then, but you have to explain those accommodations too, like to that teacher. You know, they, they didn't go to school for special ed. They went to school for whatever subject they went to school for. You know, so like everybody has to be on the same page. Just like we're going to put that puzzle together. We have to put all the pieces in, in order for that kid to be successful. Just like John. Yeah, I love that, that that idea of it's a puzzle that we have to kind of figure out so we can't just jump in right away. Yeah. I mean, obviously, there's probably some th- times you do, but as even if you have to, you have to th- step back and say, what are the other missing pieces to this puzzle? 
because right. this kid actually can be successful. Absolutely. And rather than this kid's a lost cause, the other side of it is what have we missed? Yes. That we yes. haven't tuned into. What haven't we done that might be those missing pieces that can put it together, help put it together? And we have to make sure that we hear correctly because a lot of times kids will just be, um, they want you to not like them. That's what they're pushing they for. Because they don't like themselves, right? I, I had this one student, I, I love him. He was in a motion behavioral setting and he's such a good kid. Boy, he hated me. I mean, he hated me and he didn't even know me yet. Like, seriously, we, we saw each other for the first two minutes, hated me with a passion. And I said, geez, why does this kid hate me so much, right? I didn't even say hello to him. I mean, it was, I didn't understand what was going on. So I talked to somebody else and then they go, well, Teresa, you look like his mother who used to sexually abuse him. Okay. <laughs> well. <laughs> on that note. <laughs> yeah, uh, this explains it all. <laughs> right? So, and then what do you say to the kid, right? So I felt my social responsibility as a teacher, as a, um, you know, a clinician at the time, or whatever you want to call it, a behavioral um, person, um, worker, whatever you want to call it. Anyway, so I, I felt like I needed to repair that type of relationship that he lost. And so I, um, it was like, I, this is when I was like in my 20s. Um, so he was the state's care. He was under the state's care. So he lived in the house, right? And so I took it upon, you know, he was in my classroom, but I waited until he wanted to come talk to me first. I did not push that envelope. No way. But I would go every night um, and I would get a book and I would read to him like a mom should read to their child, right? Or their dad, should they, you know, a, guy, a guardian to read to their child at night, right? So I did that with him for a long time, you know, so he could feel trust, you know, he could see what a real model should be like, you know, and then he, you know, he started coming around to me. Here, um, you know, I used to say to fool around with him, I was like, I said, oh, you're doing great, you're doing great, and he's like, he's like, oh, I said, you skills now, and you got to use them, you got to use these skills now that I have given you, right, and he goes, I said, I can't be in your back pocket for the rest of your life. And he turns around, puts out his butt at me, and goes, jump in. <laughs> and I said, I said, no, 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 that is not, you need these skills so you can do it, buddy. And he's like, no, jump in. It's all right. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Poor kid was only eight years old. Wow. Well, it's been fabulous um, time spending with you today, Teresa. You're an amazing woman. Um, I think these... You know, the stuff you're doing on a book level for, for kids and for parents is just extraordinary. It's, it's so much needed. Yeah. Um, so is there any other things that we haven't covered that you'd want to talk about? I just... Um, Valuable resources? Well, I, I usually... At my scribbles definitely at the end of the book. I do write um, some of my lesson plans I used to use in the classroom. Um, oh, so, so for teachers and stuff. Yes, I did that on purpose. I know sometimes you have to get it um, approved by the school before they can use it. But if they wanted to use it in their own personal, and then they can um, go on my web page and find what I used to do because I, you know, I used to use it and I know it works because I did it. You know, <laughs> so um, yeah. But I think I think that my heart breaks because I just want I want everybody to get back to this um, other level where the parents. And, and the teachers and everybody 
because everybody, you know, you only go, you go into the field, not for the money. That's for sure. Because you get a big heart. And, you know, and I think just everybody needs to be on that same page. Everybody's going to put that puzzle together together. Not just one person puts the puzzle together and then someone else goes, yeah, yeah, you deal with it. You know, I think everybody has to come on the same board and um, start putting the pieces together. And then and then we can make it successful for that student, for that child. And then, you know what, you never know what that kid can do. Because I used to, um, in my class, I used to have a big tree up in my room and I would put famous people with their faces out there. And um, when the kid was feeling discouraged, they would say, Mrs. M, um, why do you have all those famous people up on your board? And they said, why do you think? Oh, they're rich, they're smart, they're this, they're that, they're this, all these positives. I'm like, oh, that's awesome. Um, And I knew the kid's disability, so I said, go look at that one. Turns it around, and he goes, oh! Oh my God! They have what I have. Oh, but you said they were smart. They were rich. They're <laughs> yeah. I could be famous too. Why not? <laughs> you know. <laughs> That's it. And Just expanding. Yeah, and then they look at me and they go, um, "I'm gonna have to go back and sit and try a little harder. I'll, I'll be right back, Mrs. M. I, I, it's gonna take me a little bit longer." And then they go and they would start writing. I said, "Good job, buddy." <laughs> <laughs> It's great. Well, I, do you have a few more minutes left? Sure. Let's do the speed round. Oh, okay. What has been one of your biggest insights in the field in your career? Watching my students grow and getting what they want. That's it right there. You know, um, a kid going to not being able to read that well in ninth grade and, and being in college or that all that, you know, and watching these kids grow into what they want to be. Mm, so actually seeing them become who they could be. Yeah. Beautiful. beautiful. If you could have learned something earlier in your career, uh, what would it have been like something that would have helped you? Like, you know, you get wiser with time. Well, I, I always loved writing when I was a kid. I always thought, I just loved it and enjoyed it, but I didn't know I was good at it. And I didn't realize um, that I should promote this a lot sooner in my life until I took a class at Children's Lit in, um, in college and still didn't believe it. So I wish I, uh, I, wish I had um, my self-esteem raised a little bit more. Oh, to think, think maturity. To think that you could be a writer and be successful. Yeah. yeah. Thank you for sharing that. It's, it's, it's sweet. What is uh, so? Where do you live? Just to get. I that. live in Guilford, Connecticut, right now. So Connecticut. All right. So I spent some time <laughs> so up the in next Vermont. three years. <laughs> I, I actually spent some time up in Vermont. Was it Vermont? I landed yeah. at the Hartford, Connecticut airport. Is that right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I'm learning Connecticut, too. <laughs> and then drove up through New Hampshire mm-hmm. to Vermont. It was like an hour and a half. You can, you can yeah. like go through like four states in like two hours, it seems like. You got it. <laughs> um, so Connecticut, uh, or maybe it was early, what's your favorite food? Oh, I love pizza. Pizza. <laughs> I do. Any, uh, any good restaurants to recommend in Connecticut? Uh, I like um, Naples pizza so far. Okay. We're still searching on everything, but Naples pizza is so good so, so good. far. 
Um, what's your favorite music? What do you listen to? You know, when I was a kid, I listened to Elvis Presley and all that because of my dad. Um, but I also listened to heavy metal. Oh, really? Yes. So now I love all types of music. And I, you know who I listen to motivate myself? is <laughs> Pink. I love Pink, her. really? She's empowering. <laughs> Isn't she? I can seriously sit down and start writing, and I'm like, yeah, I got this. I got this. Yeah, go Pink. <laughs> so do you crank it? In, right back up. <laughs> so do you crank it in your car on your way to work? I crank it when I write. <laughs> right. Just crank it. Keep it going. Nice. I love it. Um, what's your favorite hobby? I love writing. Writing. <laughs> And baking and yeah, it's fun stuff like that. Uh, what is the funniest or one of one of the funniest things that you have ever done or been part of? Funniest thing um, could be recent, past, anything that kind of comes to mind. I'm trying to think. Um, funniest, I don't know. Um, Or a time you chuckled. I know. Um, probably, I'm sure, oh, my sons. My sons make me laugh all the time. <laughs> so, I have twin boys. And um, the, the funniest, for me, the funniest thing I ever saw was my son being two and a half years old, both of them, right? And my husband was deployed, and I had my gallbladder out. My mother went to go check on them because they're supposed to be sleeping, and they were not. <laughs> so... My mother opens the door and, you know, those, um, it's, they're not in cribs, they, um, the toddler beds, right? So all of a sudden you see a chair and the mattress going up to the chair on the side and you see my son climbing up it <laughs> and says, Nana, please don't take my, my slide. It's sliding down the chair. <laughs> <laughs> and they said, oh my goodness, what are you doing? Two and a half years old, you know. And, uh, and then the other, I wanted to see, you know, how they do this. And then the next day I said, show me what you did. And so then when I see my other son going, and pull, and pull. <laughs> and they do it again. And they slide and they put it right. I'm like, you're only two and a half years old. What are you two doing? <laughs> They're going to be amusement park designers. <laughs> <laughs> don't doubt it. I don't doubt it. Um, and the last speed route question is, if you could be a musician or actor, who would you choose to be and why? I got to be honest with you. You know, I actually read this one, and I, I you know, you're going to think I'm crazy. I'm going to say nobody. I would want to be myself. Oh, you know, I love that. And try to think of um, my own music, because my brother's a uh, guitarist. Uh, I played bass clarinet and clarinet when I was a kid. My kids actually play uh, trumpet and saxophone, so um, we're a musical family. Um, you know, I think I think just be genuine of yourself. I remember being in high school, and uh, I was in this junior miss thing, and you had to say, um, you know, uh, who you respected, you know, in political eye or whatever. And you know, a lot of people said there Hillary Clinton and all this stuff, and and you know what? It was never those people for me. It was. You know who it was? It was Mrs. Sunshine, Mrs. Sperry, my special ed teacher, from kindergarten to first grade to eighth grade. She like hooked me up. She helped me out, and that person was the person I would look up to because she was in it with me the whole time. You know, so political. Yeah, I, I watch these people do, but do I really know them? No, I know what they say in that microphone for twenty minutes, but I don't know them. 
And I love what you just said from the standpoint that maybe we don't have to look so far right. to find the important people in our lives. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast today. We want to thank you so much, Teresa. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate you having me here and, and connecting me, with me on LinkedIn because uh, I really feel like this is my mission to help these students and I'm going to keep writing for them and I want to keep writing on the social stories is pretty much what I'm writing and I want to see um, kids grow correctly and and use these in the classroom to help them reach their, you know, their optimum development mm. to reach where they want to go. That's what it's about. Well, thank you. Well, thank you. Hey there, Recovery Nation. Producer John here again. Thank you so much to Teresa Makowitz for sharing her time with us. To learn more about Teresa and her work, visit tmacbooks.com. Teresa's book, Scribbles, is available through Mascot Books and Amazon. If you liked today's episode, you can subscribe, leave a review, and listen to past episodes on iTunes, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. And visit fullpotentialnow.org for your free TED tools. This episode featured music by Pat Reinholtz and me, John Procruzzi. Thanks for listening.